Hello, everybody. Just a quick note before this episode starts. After Rebecca and I recorded our conversation about the wave of Omicron-related cancellations in award season, there were more cancellations, the Governor's Awards being one of the big ones, as well as the Critics' Choice Awards. And by the time you hear this, there might have been more. It's a fast-moving story. So just letting you know that uh, we're a little behind, but we are going to be keeping an eye on this wave of cancellations as they keep coming. Enjoy the episode. Happy holidays. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm here with Rebecca Ford. Hello. And that's it. It's just us. <laughs> um, it's a uh, it's a holiday week recording. Um, we wanted to record this week, even though uh, most of our office is closed, because the Academy shortlist is out uh, as of today as we record this with uh, the shortlist in 10 different categories. But it's also been a pretty newsy week as Omicron kind of sweeps the nation in, in, a, in a bad way. Sweeps the nation can be good or bad. This one is bad. Um, so we're going to catch up on all of those bits of news. And then later on, you'll hear an interview that David Canfield did with Penelope Cruz star of Parallel Mothers, shortlisted today in score, I might add. Um, But let's start with the cancellations. Rebecca, you were tweeting about this as, uh, you know, one of the L.A. people who would usually spend the first couple weeks of January very, very busy. Uh, It sounds like your calendar might clear up uh, after the events of the last few days. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny because they all canceled on the same day. So it just felt like one hit (laughs) after another. Um, But, you know, the first big one was the Palm Springs um, Gala, which is always except for last year, has always Mm -hmm. been a very um, star studded event. It's sort of a mix of like every big award season contender and then all these sort of eccentric, wealthier people who buy tables in Mm -hmm. Palm Springs and are, I call them looky-loos because they just like love to look at the celebrities and, and love film. And, and it's always a really big event. So I was really excited that it was happening this year. Our colleague David Canfield was going to go. But so that one canceled first and then I don't know, maybe an hour later, it was announced that AFI will not be holding their awards luncheon, which, again, is usually an event that all these stars attend. And then following that quickly, the BAFTA tea also canceled. Um, so Which would also be in that same window of January. Right. And and is in L.A. as well. So, yeah, you know, these are all really special events to award season. So I don't know. What it was like a domino effect, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and so now we're kind of looking at the Critics' Choice Awards, which are still, as we record this, scheduled for January 9th. Um, the New York Film Critics Circle dinner was scheduled for the 10th uh, in New York. They postponed um, as we record this as well. And then uh, the big one that I'm curious about is the Governor's Awards for the, for the Oscars, which is scheduled for January 15th, which is a huge event. Um, and you know, maybe you can walk through why it's such a big deal. They haven't announced anything. By the time you hear this, they may well have. But I feel like canceling that one would be a really really big blow, but it's also hard to know what the safe option is, right? It does feel like if they're going to cancel, they'll do it this week. I can't imagine them waiting till early January because that event is January 15th. And it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's an Academy event and it's such a big deal. And I think everyone was really excited that they were able to have it this year. Um, and I was planning on going. And so yeah. I, it's kind of, yeah, like you said, by the time this 
airs, it may be canceled. But, um, you know, I don't, it's just so hard. You know, I really feel for all these groups because it just it's so hard to predict the future, even even two weeks out with the way, um, you know, Omicron is is affecting everything so quickly. Yeah. And we're in a different place than we were this time in 2020. You know, the, the vaccines exist. Like there's you know reasons to feel personally like you can be safe. But all of these huge, lavish in-person events where presumably everyone would have masks on, like it's maybe not a great idea health wise and optics wise, I think, is the other part of it. Like if you're going to throw a big party right now, you might want to have a really good reason, at least if you're in New York and L.A. Um, and they, they might just not want to deal with the potential blowback and, and just do the safe thing and cancel. Yeah, I think it's both of those things. And also the fact that if all these events had stayed on the calendar, the same people are sort of moving from one to the other night after yeah. night. And and that's just, uh, you know, a recipe sort of for disaster when it comes to this. So yeah, it's I mean, totally understandable. You imagine like Jane Campion in New Zealand, Benedict Cumberbatch in England, like Andrew Garfield, wherever, like if all of them are like, I don't feel comfortable going, then eventually you don't have an event anymore because it's, it's relying on those, uh, those contenders really, like you said, making the circuit. Yeah, it's... It's so interesting because I feel like January is often, you know, the time of year where because of these events, contenders are, you know, improving their odds or decreasing their odds based on, you know, how they sort of are welcomed at these events or, you Mm -hmm. know, what kind of quotes they give at these events. And, you know, they're just staying at the top of mind for voters by appearing at these things. So it is a, you know, an opportunity they all definitely participate in. So it changes the sort of momentum of the season. Yeah. And it feels like the um, appetite for another virtual awards campaign is pretty limited. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know if anyone really wants to do that at this point, but yeah, you, you take what you can get, right? I think we're all zoomed out. <laughs> as, we, as we speak on Zoom, at least with cameras off, we do ourselves yes. that, that favor. Um, at this point, I'm feeling pretty optimistic about the Oscars themselves. And I realize that predicting the future at this stage of the pandemic is foolish. So, you know, don't listen to me all that much. But, you know, March is still many months away. I, I, if, I, if I'm in the Academy, you know, I would maybe be worrying. But I'm personally not too worried about them, like, canceling the Oscars or something like that. Are you with me? I'm with you. I mean, they were able to pull off awards, the actual awards shows in a sort of safe and limited fashion already for a good year now. And so I think it will happen in some form. You know, maybe they had envisioned having a full audience and, all you know, people like us there. And and maybe that's not going to happen. But yeah, late March is still very far away and and things can change. But I agree that I, I don't see the Oscars not happening. Yeah, people like us were the first ones to be given the virtual option to not yeah. be there in person. <laughs> right. and they don't mind getting us off the deck for that one. I know, but I missed it last year. I'm really hopeful to go I back. I know. I mean, you know, I'm not in L.A., so I was not I didn't have these events on my calendar. But I think I can just kind of sense that disappointment of like, oh, this all this normal stuff, all this like fun gala stuff was going to be happening. And now it's just like we're back to square one, back to like being stuck at home, which is so Sad. Everyone go get your booster shots. <laughs> if there's one thing you can do, save the Oscars, get boosted. <laughs> it's probably that's probably way down the list on reasons to get boosted, but you yeah. know, whatever, listen, we'll, if, we'll take if, whatever reason. If you, you are listening need. to this podcast and you're waiting for your reason, then there you have it. That that will get you the Oscars. <laughs> Um, All right. Well, speaking of the Oscars, uh, as I said, the Academy shortlist in 10 different categories came out uh, today, December 21st, as we record this. Um, And you wrote it up for VF.com, which people can read and kind of highlighted the not a ton of surprises. I guess there's really just one surprise maybe we should start with. So, um, Titan, what happened? Titan. I I think that was definitely the surprise. I do feel like the 
because it did not make the list of 15 um, for international feature. And and I do feel like that category always has surprises. But, you know, this film won the palm at Cannes in May. And that's sort of like a automatic, OK, France uh, nominated it, so it should make the list. But mm-hmm. I do think this film... I mean, it's it's so well done and I really respect the filmmaking, but it is a trip. I mean, it's a gory, uh, <laughs> unconventional film. And I, I do wonder if that turned some people off to it. Um, you know, it's definitely not traditional. So, yeah, um, that's my best guess for it. You know, because that, I think, I agree, was definitely the biggest surprise. Yeah. I mean, the international feature category, this is a, a story that's been on for a long time. And they, the branch has instituted rules to kind of make it so that some of these more challenging movies stand a better chance of getting in. Um, but I don't think you're the only person who thought it would still be a pretty um, tough road, even for something that's a Palm d'Or winner. Yeah. And that category has such incredible films competing in it. Not that it doesn't every year, but I, I feel like more people are talking about the international features than a lot of years. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say, is that, you know, Flea gets in there from Denmark, um, A Hero from Iran, Hand of God from Italy, which is right by Netflix, Drive My Car from Japan, which is one of a slew of critics' prizes, Worst Person in the World, which we've talked about on this show. Like, that's five big deal movies right there. Um, and then I'm, I'm sure that there are other great titles in there that I haven't seen because I'm not, I'm not a perfect human, but I think, I think it'll be a good list anyway. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great list. And and because they're only going to eventually take five, I do think we can easily name more than that than deserve a slot. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. As is often the case. Mm -hmm. Um, You you pointed out in your piece, Johnny Greenwood getting two nominations and score, which I think was expected. I didn't expect to see Billie Eilish. I guess her name isn't on there, but Billie Eilish is represented twice in that her documentary got nominated, as did her song from No Time to Die. Is there anyone else who should be especially happy about their... um, their performance on these shortlists? Well, I'm really excited Beyonce and Jay-Z are competing against each other. Yeah. Uh, you know, Beyonce has the the song uh, from King Richard and Jay-Z has the song from The Harder They Fall, which he also executive produced. So I just imagine them like, you know, arguing over this in their home. I mean, that's what everyone <laughs> does, I assume. Um, I mean, that song category is just packed with huge names. So yeah. I think that's going to be really interesting to see who gets the actual nominations. Yeah, I like seeing that the song from Annette, So May We Start, uh, made it mm-hmm. on there. Speaking of like weird, challenging movies that you weren't sure would make it in. Um, but that that seemed like a worthy spot to me. And I also, as the as the fan of Encanto on this podcast, the uh, the d- Spanish language Das Oreguitas, I'm probably saying that wrong. Anyway, written by Limoa Miranda. He had a very busy year and he um, this is the song that qualified. So that would get him his EGOT, I think. We'll see. Yep. We'll see how that shakes out. Yeah, it's so interesting because he also has Tick Tick Boom, obviously, and and in the Heights. So he's just like all over this. He could get to that EGOT a bunch of different ways. Yeah, it, it feels it feels like really a matter of when, not if, for him. Yeah. but we'll see. Um, I want to know what you make of Belfast showing up in the sound category, which can you can really run the gamut. There's a lot of musicals in there, which uh, often happens, and then Dune and Matrix, Matrix Resurrections. Um, but both Belfast and The Power of the Dog being in there, I thought was an interesting indication of um, some broader support they might have when the all the nominations come out. Yeah, I think you're totally right that being nominated in these or not nominated, mentioned in these shortlist categories does indicate sort of wider support. Um, I think Belfast, there is something about movies that have, you know, either obviously wartime scenes or mm-hmm. sort of those sort of vi- and there's these riot scenes in Belfast and 
um, that I thought were really well done. So I do wonder if that helped, you know, boost it in the sound category. Yeah. I also thought about the scenes where they're at the movies and you're kind of seeing, hearing audio from a movie within the movie that you're watching. And I'm betting that's more complicated than you think to make that feel feel right to for you to, to listen to it yourself. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, and these are the 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 voters are within these branches, so they really are sort of experts on this, which yeah. you know, us lay people may not notice things in the sound category that they are able to notice and sort of highlight, I think. Yeah, although I think you and I share a love for interviewing these people and they just like explain it and you're like, whoa, <laughs> thank you for, for revealing the witchcraft that goes into what they can do. Oh, my gosh. The best stories. I love when, especially when the, the sound team is like, I used a broom in my garage to make the no. And I'm like, I love it. Like, I just I they, they're just so creative. And I feel like they just anytime they do an interview, I'm yeah, I'm totally entertained. Yeah. If you are um, rooting for the Oscars to pay attention to blockbusters, Spider-Man uh, qualified in visual effects and in sound. So maybe it will get some nominations and get the Marvel people to watch. Anything else that you're you're paying attention to out of these? I mean, I think it's interesting that both No Time to No Time to Die actually got the most mentions on, on of all hmm. these shortlists, and and Dune followed with four. So, I mean, obviously, a lot of these categories are crafts, which both those films are are really strong in. But you know, those are both big movies, so um, I think that's exciting to see, and and we'll have to see if that continues to play out with nominations. Oh, and I should really say that um, seeing my beloved Green Knight show up in score, I love, because I, when I walked out of the movie, I was just um, thinking about Daniel Hart, who did the score for that movie, which is wonderful. Um, I don't know how steep a road it is for an actual nomination, but I was happy to see it there. Yeah, I think these shortlists always help because people can see them and be like, Oh, yes, that movie <laughs> that I loved so much, but I've kind of forgotten about because of all the other movies. So, yeah, who knows? Well, we can cross our fingers for the Green Knight. Yeah. Or, or Cyrano, which we um, both really like making it in the makeup and hairstyling category, mm-hmm, which I, mm-hmm. I was happy to see, too. I mean, along with Isaac Tammy Faye, uh, No Time to Die, like some very Cruella, like big, prominent yep. makeup movies that might steal the thunder. We'll see. So we have the nomination shortlist. As we mentioned, uh, what's going to be happening in early January is really up in the air. And then the actual final nominations don't come out until February <laughs> February 8th. So it's going to be a while. Um, before we uh, listen to David uh, talk to Penelope Cruz, anything you're watching, Rebecca, or anything you want to tell people to watch while we have their attention one last time before, before the year wraps up? I mean, we'll have an episode next week, but we recorded already. So this is really our last gasp for, for 2021. I mean, I I just watched Drive My Car. I was a little late for that one, and and you know our colleague David really loved it, and I'm I'm so glad I got to see it. So I think if if you haven't caught that one yet, obviously it just made the international feature shortlist. Um, it's a really special film. I wanted to just shout out the Los Angeles Film Critics Association that gave the Best Actor Award to Simon Rex for Red Rocket, mm-hmm. which we have talked mm-hmm. about and talked about, I'm sure. But if anyone needed one last reminder to see this kind of like dirty, uh, not silly movie, but like funny and kind of gross sometimes uh, movie, uh, it's got their stamp of approval and he's really, really fantastic in it. So go check that one out. I do feel like that's probably not the one you watch over the holidays with your parents, but no, that is the one for like after everyone's gone to bed and you don't feel yeah. like going to bed yet. Like Zaf- yeah. We for that you have a uh, House of Gucci or Encanto or, or there's a lot to choose Story. from. Yeah, 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 a lot of options out there. Um well then let's go ahead and hear uh, David Canfield's conversation with Penelope Cruz.
Well, last we spoke, you, you told me that Pedro Moldovar called you when you were 18 years old. And I wanted to start there right at the beginning. That was the first time you'd spoken. What do you remember about that call? Do you look back on it now as kind of a life-changing moment? Completely life-changing. It was like an old friend that was calling back after a long time. It didn't feel new. Huh. It didn't feel he was someone new in my life. Maybe because I knew him so well from cinema. So many incredible things have happened to me because of him and because this relationship. And he's like another family member, you know, he's not just someone I work with. Mm. You've said you can't hide anything from him. I'm wondering, is there a kind of freedom in that for you as an actor? How does that inform the way you are in his movies? I I prefer it to be this way because also he can't lie to me either. So if I do something and he's not convinced, he will tell me, but if he doesn't, I will see it anyway. And we know that about each other. We know like we can feel each other, read each other's minds almost. And it's good because we never abuse the, 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 the confidence of, oh, we're good friends or we relax on set with each other. Oh, no, 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 no. We almost change the way we behave with each other on set and become mm-hmm. a little more distant. We didn't plan that, but I think we do it to protect the relationship and the work. Has that evolved over time from film to film or was it always like that for you? Always like that. Maybe at the beginning, the first couple of movies, we were more like, ha ha ha, because we had just met. And later we were becoming so close and knowing each other so well that it was like, okay, yeah, we can laugh and joke when we are in a dinner. It doesn't mean there is no humor on the set. Some days there is, but is all about the work and about protecting that. And that way, we end up protecting also the friendship. Yeah. So you've known about this role in a very loose sense for uh, over 20 years now, right? He told you about it and around all about my mother that time. What do you remember about when he first told you about it? And I imagine it's cha- it changed quite a bit from there. He told me about the two women, what happened to them at the hospital. And he told me about playing the younger character because it was so long ago. But I always wanted to play the photographer. The photographer, Janice, she stayed with me all these years. So when he told me, I said, Pedro, I remember you shared this with me. And I think he didn't didn't remember that. He shares with me all the stories he's thinking about and then he forgets. (laughs) Because I don't keep asking him, oh, by the way, when are you going to do this? I'm very respectful to that. But last month he shared an incredible story to us. And now we are all wondering, is he going to do that? Because he has great imagination and always creating. He's always like writing three things at the same time. Did you have, do you have other stories that he's told you in your head still from over the years that like roles that you might like to play? There was one scene that he described to me that it was a panic attack and he just, I read that somewhere and then it was not in any of the scripts. And that is always my mystery. Pedro, where was that panic attack scene? It was incredible because the description of it, of how it happened, it was like so good and so scary. Oh, wow. And he's like, hmm, true. That's familiar. No, yeah, you wrote it. (laughs) What is it? (laughs) Incredible. Yeah. It's got to pop up some, someday. <laughs> I remember everything, everything he ever shares with me and everything that I have read that has not been done, like everything. Wow. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about Janice, um, who is such a complicated character, and she's someone who, who has to hide quite a bit without spoiling anything. How did you start to figure her out, get into her headspace? Um, what was that process like for you? Janice expressed her feelings very, in a very different way than I do. In a situation like that, I would be crying all day long. Mm-hmm. It's my, my tool for sanity, you know, like to be able to cry, to express myself out of happiness, emotion, sadness, anger. It's just really therapeutical for me. But for some people, that's hard. Um, Janice is, is harder than me in that way. Like, it's not so much in contact with her own emotions. And when we started rehearsing, rehearsing Milena and I would start reading and would start crying because it was so strong, the script and what happens to them. And he was very patient and he said, I understand we're going to go through this process. You can cry all you want now, but we're not going to have your own tears mixed with the ones of the characters. And these characters don't cry as much as you. Uh, we got what he wanted to, what who he wanted to get. But that took a while because it was like, start reading and look at all the situations that they go through. And once we found that, which is the tone for part of the beginning, after she finds the news, when I went back and watched it, like I, I I understood very well. He showed me half an hour in the middle of the shooting and I understood it's almost like a thriller. It's almost like film noir. It's like a ticking bomb. And and that's what I was feeling like for two months of the shooting. It was like such an adrenaline trip, like building up to that moment where she's going to explode and confess. Mm. And in that moment, he allowed me to, you know, be able to have that emotional release where she's like crying, screaming, throwing up in the floor of the bathroom. Like the audience needs that release with her at that point, but not before. And to get that, you know, like it, it was like necessary to have all those months of like releasing like our own, our own feelings in respect of the characters and, and, and drawing that to be able to get into that tone of contention and, and that ticking bomb. And then at the point when she confesses, okay, then that is a release that she needs and the audience will really need. Yeah, with her. It's, it's very cathartic for, for me. But if that would have happened from scene one, yeah, exactly. it would have been a completely different movie. Definitely. So I think that's what makes him so incredible as a director. Mm. That, that kind of rehearsal time is, is quite a luxury for an actor. Is that common for you working with Pedro or did it feel extra... Um, you know, an extra amount of time compared to usual. We, with him, we always have rehearsal time, and uh, sometimes like three months. In this one, we rehearsed more, and it was necessary. And we had that time because we were in pre-production. Like he finished the script very early, the departments were not ready, so so we needed to to have that time. And we are very grateful for him to give us that time. When I work with a director that doesn't doesn't have a plan to rehearse. I prepare by myself. I do that research. I I work with my acting teacher, Juan Carlos Coraza, and I love going to the studio and prepare there. But the, the research uh, process is as important as the shooting or more, and I enjoy it so much. Um, but I imagine you don't get that with on other films that are not Pedro <laughs> as much. No, some directors prefer, you know, like not to not to have a long rehearsal time and. And then you prepare by yourself, which is okay also. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying, oh, this is the only way that things can work. Yeah. 
And with him, I don't prepare by myself. I arrive like from zero with him. We start together from zero. Well, your your co-star in this film, you have such a rich relationship. What was it like working with Milena and um, and finding that dynamic between these two women? It was very easy because we connected from day one. And I think she's a great actress. I think things, uh, things will go very well for her. Uh, we needed to really trust each other to do this. And it just, it just happened. It was easy from day one. It was a very strong connection, very comfortable with each other. It was so important to find the right person for that character. And, and we did. And, and I think she's great in the film. Yeah, she really is. So you mentioned wanting to play a photographer. What about that part of Janice did you key into? Why was that an attractive job for you to play, for lack of a better way of putting it? Because I love photography. I have so many friends that are photographers. I, I've been taking pictures since I was a teenager. Having this smartphone has made me kind of abandon my hobby, photography, because you have the camera there, so you don't carry your own camera, and it's never the same. It's never it's not the, the same. Not the same. And it makes me sad. You know, I, I had a, a Leica that Annie Leibovitz gave me as a present. I have it at home somewhere. And I'm always thinking, why don't I carry that with me? And I used to take pictures all the time. Now I only take pictures of my children. But I don't know. It's something different about taking them with your phone. Yeah. And I don't know. I like that, you know, like the independency of this character. She's, she's a very cool, complicated character, complex. I, I always wanted to play her from, from the moment I heard about it 20 years ago. Pedro, and, and you've talked about this, um, has been casting you as, as mothers pretty consistently over the course of his films uh, before you even were one yourself. Why do you think he always saw that maternal quality in you and, and wanted to bring that out in his films? Have you, have you, I'm curious if you've spoken about that at all. Because he always saw that in me, because if we were taking a walk in the street and I saw a baby, I was always like picking it up without even asking like, mm. <laughs> going to strangers and have, a, I love children. And I always knew I wanted to be a mother since I was a little girl. I've been saying that I have a very strong maternal instinct and he always saw it because he's my friend and, and he just, it's not planned. He just was writing and thought about who's right for this character. And then he would call me and either pregnant, like my first movie with him, I was in birth in a bus or uh, a mother, except for broken embraces. Mm -hmm. And often in some perilous situations. <laughs> um, in very peculiar situations, always. Yeah. Yes, yeah. always. Nothing easy, not easy lives. No, no. But I imagine that makes it a little bit more fun as an actor. No, of course. I mean, the most challenging the character is and the most difficult, the more difficult, the better. Of course, it's like I get there feeling like completely terrified. Like the first few days, I feel really scared. And that is my engine, you know, like I need that fear. I, I don't ever want that to go away or to yeah. feel too confident. Mm, that would be really bad in this profession, I think. Hmm. What was it like? coming off of Pain and Glory, in which you are kind of, in effect, playing a version of his mother, a version of him, his mother. How was that experience for you? I mean, it was short because I only worked for two weeks, um, but it was an honor to play his mom. I met her many years ago, and she was crying with me, telling me about how proud she was and how terrified she had been in the past when Pedro 
told her that she was that he was gonna quit the job at the telephone company because she thought that he was very safe there and he was gonna risk every, everything for the cinema and that now he was right and everything worked out and she was crying and she was so lovely and and I understood a lot uh, about Pedro's personality you know from that conversation and also I didn't know at that point that was like 25 years ago no 20 years ago I didn't know that it was going to be so important for me later for Pain and Glory where I was playing her to have experienced the essence of of her of this mother right because all of his movies or many of his movies are about motherhood and about um that quality I, I imagine there was a lot to draw on not only in that but in your past work with him and knowing how he writes about and thinks about mothers yeah and especially in Volver because we went to his neighborhood where he grew up and we saw you know the atmosphere is still the same in terms of the relationship with the neighbors and I could imagine Pedro spying from the door of his house spying the conversations of the neighbors and learning from all those women observing them and planning his future you know, as a storyteller. Um, he was a good student, but most of his time there was observing the the dynamic between these women, uh, observing what they were saying and what they were not saying. Yeah. And you understand a lot about who he is because of all those women around, the mother, the sisters, the neighbors. And he's done so much for, for women, the characters, the female characters that he has written every time are such an incredible homage to women and he understands us so well. Mm. Do your own experiences in motherhood affect, have they affected how you've approached these kinds of roles now? Um, do you find a deeper or different kind of attachment to them? I, I feel I understood before and you can play a mother if you haven't been like the same way you can play a, a drug addict or a, or a nun or a, like or be in any situation that maybe you haven't been. Because I always had that instinct, uh, that maternal instinct. I feel maybe it doesn't make such a big difference. Now, maybe I get even more obsessed when something like that happens to a character and more upset personally when a scene finishes. Like one day, Pedro had to pick me up from the floor and was kind of angry with me and said, like, I want you to do the same without suffering. But I looked at him like, what are you talking about? <laughs> It, it, what is the way? I don't know the way, but you don't know the way either. Because if you see in what state he is when we're shooting, sometimes he worries me because mm. you feel that I, he he could give his life for the movie. So I could not take that advice from him. And <laughs> I, I don't, I try not to take that energy home, but sometimes I have to stay there like one hour after finishing to come back to reality because it's not like automatic yeah. but I don't I'm not complaining about that it's an amazing ride an amazing adventure you know every one of those days of going into somebody else's reality and you need that truth there and you need to you're doing it for them you know unfortunately it's fiction but you're touching subjects that are the reality of many people in the world you know? maybe not what happens to Janice and Anna but uh, any kind of threat about losing what you love the most, in this case, children. So th there, there has to be truth. It cannot be about protecting yourself. Or, I don't want to suffer doing those things. No, you have to go all the way. And the safety net is that you know you are, 
you are doing a fiction. But it's going to touch you and move you and it's going to hurt because you know that there are people in the world going through situations like that. So you cannot look away from that. Yeah. So that's it. I think the beauty of this of this profession, the beauty of acting is like always to, to do it for you know, for others and in the name of honoring that, you know, like uh, even if it's as, as painful as it can be, that deserves to be told with truth. Yeah. No, I love that. I'll finish by asking you kind of a big question. This, this might be my favorite performance of yours. Uh, it's, oh, thank you so much. Thank and and you. I'm, I'm curious for you, how do you, how do you see yourself as having grown as an actor? If you take yourself back to that first film you made with Pedro and now, what does that journey look like for you? I always see myself as a student, you know, I, I look back and I see my first two movies, Jamon, Jamon, Belle Epoque. I was very lucky because they were very different from each other. So it was like a good presentation card of doing these two different things. And then Pedro came into my life and, and I'm a student, a student of life. It's not just about my profession or acting. Acting is, you never get to a place where you feel confident, where you feel, okay, now I know everything I had to learn. Never. I mean, always like beginning, always from zero. Of course, there is like the years of experience behind and you learn and that's there with you. And also your experiences in life and that are gonna get mixed with your own work because we work, you know, we study human behavior, human confusion. Is <laughs> the, the, the beauty of that for me is like, it doesn't end. So I imagine like if we talk when I'm 90, I would be telling you exactly the same thing. I, I don't think I would get tired of acting because of that. Because you always are always new. That does it for this week's show. As we mentioned, I will be back next week with an episode that we all recorded together to talk about West Side Story, the original, as well as the new one, which we have made very clear how much we love. Uh, and we'll have two interviews on that episode as well. So lots to hear from before the new year begins. Um, in the meantime, Rebecca, we're all taking a much needed break, but you can find us on VF.com in some ways and on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich and Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. And we're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men, where we'd love to hear from you. Or you can text us at subtext. Join subtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7215. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Bukes. And have a happy new year. Happy new year.